Welcome to the Transform Your Wealth and Health Podcast, where experts in wealth, health, and fitness help transform your life. Here's your host, Andy Arder. He's a London financial regulation analyst, a property investor, and also the founder of the Slow Money Club podcast and website. Today's guest is Quasi Affam. How are we doing, Quasi? Very well, Andy. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm absolutely fine. I'm, I'm proud to have you over here because we've been talking about this for ages and we haven't actually got round to it, but now we have. So, yeah. well done. No, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, finally. Oh, well done, mate. Thanks for coming over. It's a rotten night as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think we chose a bad night <laughs> with the snow and everything, but and I had to drive for long distance to get here, but it was worth it. Thank you. Now, you've been working in the financial districts of London. Tell us about your career. Oh, wow. That's a bit of a loaded question. Yeah. So my career started in, in financial services, started in about 2006, 2007, which also happens to be sort of coincidentally when the financial crisis happened. I mean, I don't take any responsibility for that, of course. It wasn't me that caused it. <laughs> I know one of my old bosses used to joke all the time that it must be me. I think so I, st- I started, I remember... It was September 2007 and I started working for a company called Goldman Sachs. And at the time, I think it was in, within my first week, Northern Rock went bust. And then a couple of weeks later, later it was Lehman Brothers, uh, a US bank, investment bank mm-hmm. that went bust. Are you sure this is nothing to do with you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as much as I'd, I'd, you know, I'd like to say I had that much power and clout, unfortunately, okay. on that occasion, I didn't cause, you know, 300-year-old institution to go bankrupt in okay. my first month on the job (laughs) but so it was was quite an interesting time to start because I think at least up until that point people had a certain perception of banking investment banking in particular I know I did Um, but the environment that I went to was totally different so you know uh, people were being laid off left right and center I remember the first team that I joined the the boss our boss was on maternity leave when she was made redundant and I got moved to a different team, funny enough, but in, in that team, months later, that boss got made redundant and she just come back from maternity leave. And people will say to me, oh, you know, they can't do that, they can't do that, but well, guess what? They did it. <laughs> That's what happened. Yeah. So it was quite it was quite an interesting period. So kind of growing up or, or growing up in the work world or learning in the work world during that kind of climate was, um, yeah, interesting. And I learned a lot. And so I was um, maybe... 18 months into the job I started getting this kind of feeling that the job you know working life wasn't about having one job for the rest of your life and Mm -hmm. having that job security because the people around me didn't have it and so yeah I think that was that's that's how my career began and I I focused on my career I doubled down made sure that I wasn't going to be one of the people that would be made redundant but at the same time knowing that this isn't something that was going to probably sustain me forever i was saying to a friend of mine i've probably had a longer career in investment banking than i thought i would have had mm-hmm. some in 2007 11 years ago mm. okay so have you worked for many companies in the industry um so i've worked for uh goldman sachs as i mentioned i've worked for another bank called jp morgan yeah. for a good number of years um i then worked at uh, deutsche bank which is another bank um and i also worked for hsbc Wow, so you're you're quite well placed to advise us on financial matters then. 
Well, <laughs> I think it depends what those financial matters are, but okay, well, I've we'll had a lot of experience. Okay, we're going to delve into a few then in that case. Um, I've just read your article, by the way, in the Your Property News YPN magazine on financial compliance in the property industry. So how important do you think this is? Well, <laughs> again, another loaded question, I mm. think. Um, one of the things, so I invest in property. And uh, to the earlier point that I made, one of the I realized that I wasn't going to be able to probably have the lifestyle or the long term life that I wanted just through my job, just, you know, getting a job, getting paid. That probably wasn't going to be able to give me the life that I wanted. And so I started looking at other things and I invested. I invested many things. One of the things I invest in is property. And when I got into property investing, I, coming from my background, my career was may has been, since 2007 has mainly revolved around the only growth area in investment banking in that time, which is regulation. Mm-hmm. You know, the companies that I work for in the time that I work for them have spent over a billion on regulation alone. Billion. So yeah. Wow. And so that's how much I didn't get all of that. Just to be clear, they didn't pay that money to me. <laughs> But okay. you know that that's that's been the growth area, and by by way, you know, I spent some time working on the trading side and the operations side. But whatever I did typically involved some form of regulation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so you mentioned other investing. What other investing do you do, and what property investing do you do? Yeah, so when I started, when I when I finally got to the point um, uh, that I wanted to start investing, um, I, I I read lots of books. I, I did lots of research. And one of the best books that I read and I still read every so often is a book called by Benjamin Graham called The Intelligent Investor. I don't know if you've read that. No, book. I don't know that one. No. Yeah. So Ben Graham was um, Warren Buffett's mentor. Wow. I know that a lot of people are a big fan of Warren Buffett. I'm a big fan of his mentor, who's a great, great investor. He was also a professor and a teacher at Columbia Business School, which is one of my goals is to go to that school to do my MBA just because he was a professor at that school. So yeah. anyway, so I started reading this book, studying people, studying material. I started doing other things. I did something called the CFA, which is the Chartered Financial Analyst designation, um, the level one, just to learn. I mean, mm-hmm. to be honest, it, it, while it was relevant to my job, I did it more just for me to learn and to be able to actually use that. Mm-hmm. So I used that to begin with to start investing in stocks and shares. So to answer your question, yeah. um, one of the things that I invest in, um, I started with actually, was stocks and shares. Mm-hmm. And so using um, strategies that I learned from the Intelligent Investor book around value investing um, or formal value investing, kind of changing that to suit my style and my own investment philosophy, I started investing and bit by bit started building a stocks and shares portfolio. Mm, okay. Yeah, so that that's one of the things that I do. Um, not on the property side, so actually my investment philosophy that I use, that I developed early on, is the same thing I use for stocks and shares, it's the same thing I use for property. Mm-hmm. I invest typically for income generation, I invest long-term, I'm a buy and hold investor, regardless of the asset class, or whether that's property, um, s- s- shares, whatever it is, buy and hold, and um, yeah, so long-term income, generating assets is really what I focus on. Okay, and what what type of investing do you do in property? So in property I buy and I renovate and I make homes for people 
um, by effectively by subdividing them and turning them into houses of multiple occupation. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of my uh, beliefs really is that there's, well, this house, th- we have this housing crisis in this country, but one of my personal beliefs is that there's uh, also an under-occupation of property crisis, if you like, in this country. So if you look at the figures, I think the average occupation of a house has dropped over mm-hmm. time um, as less and less people have moved from towns into cities and a whole range of other things. But across the board in the country, we have in some regions, we have over-occupation mm-hmm. and overpopulation. but then across the board, we have under-occupation. So using that as kind of my template, I started looking at ways that you can increase the occupation of existing property. And that led me obviously to HMOs, yeah. which also ticked other boxes in terms of my investment philosophy, because I look for income generation, I'm buy and hold. And yeah, so in property, I invest, I buy and hold uh, HMO property. And that's basically the strategy that I operate. I look um, mainly in Northwest London. Mm -hmm. I don't deviate too much from the area that I know very well and, you know, have have grown up in, actually. But I know that area. I know those streets. I could probably walk down those streets. There's so many houses that I've been and viewed. Yeah. And so I focus on that. I guess the challenge is that I, I live in London and the prices in London are very high. Yeah. So... At some point, maybe I'll have to look in other places. But yeah, so I did HMOs in Northwest London. Okay, well, people are saying that it's much more difficult at the moment to fill HMOs. How are you finding it? I mean, I, at the moment, actually, across all our units, we have full occupation, funnily enough. I think that at the moment, it's not necessarily um, existing HMOs that are the problem, but it's setting up new HMOs. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm in a phase right now where at the, today I was viewing properties and... I'm not sure if the the value's there because it's almost like mm-hmm. sellers are pricing in uh, a lot of the fact they can it can be converted to HMO, especially in London. And so you know they want to sell it for the price that they think it'd be worth as a HMO, mm. whereas it's not right now. So it's very difficult to get good value deals. But as with anything, there's always it's just about looking. And I think it's just a question of how many properties you see. Eventually, you'll find one that stacks up. So yeah. It's a okay. numbers game. Mm-hmm. And what about Bitcoin? You into Bitcoin and yeah. um, what's the other one they call it? Block? Blockchain. Blockchain. Yeah, yeah, Help yeah. me out here. <laughs> <laughs> so blockchain, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of my job and my work as well. One of the things that I do is that I mentor um, startups and also um, we we look at different blockchain technologies. Um, so and I have a personal interest as well as a professional interest in blockchain and um, currencies I mean, I, I don't want to use the word uh, cryptocurrency because it's not just really cryptos that I look at, but mm-hmm. blockchain is one of mm-hmm. many mm-hmm. thousands of cryptos. Yep. And blockchain, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call blockchain an investment personally. That's just me. <laughs> but what would you call it? It's a speculative punt, right? At best, mm-hmm. if you're invest- if you if you're buying Bitcoin, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that because people, I know, I, you know, I have, I have friends that go to the races go to the horses, you know, go see the greyhound. There's nothing wrong with that. They come back and they might buy me a drink because they've made some money. (laughs) But if you're buying Bitcoin, just understand that you're doing something similar. It's not like doing, I mentioned Ben Ben Graham earlier, you Mm -hmm. know, he has a whole philosophy about how you analyze a company to determine his intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. And on that basis, you invest. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean... It's basically not what Bitcoin is, but you look at a company and it will have things like underlying assets. Ultimately, I guess the crux of what Ben Graham preaches is that 
at various points, the company's trading on an open market and the price that the market attributes to that company might be less or com either comparative to other companies, similar companies, or compared to the value of its actual books. So there you have a kind of a delta, a gap between what the company is actually worth and what it's trading for, mm -hmm. either relative to itself or relative to other companies. And so you can look at that and you can say, you know, it's got this much plant, property, equipment, it's got this much cash on its balance sheet, it's doing this much business, it's growing the business at this rate, actually. And you can look at, okay, a similar company not doing as good is actually trading for more. There's intrinsic value here. Yeah, I guess so. so there's something behind it. Um, whereas Bitcoin isn't, all there is is just the speculation, the speculation that people attach to it. I mean, there's a school of thought that something is worth what someone's willing to pay. Yes. And so that, I guess, in a sense, Bitcoin has a value because people are willing to, as long as people are willing to pay a certain amount for it, but in, it doesn't have intrinsic value. And that's the key thing. Again, nothing wrong with Bitcoin for the record, nothing wrong with buying or selling Bitcoin, but just understand what you're doing and make sure that, you know, you know what you're doing. Okay. Well, you have a podcast too. And I love your podcast, The Slow Money Club. And I've seen your recording studio too. It's fantastic. <laughs> so would you mind telling us what The Slow Money Club is about? Yeah, of course. I mean, Slow Money Club is something that I started really as a way to share and kind of give back uh, information for, or, as, as well as, you know, people that I know, people in my network, people who have a lot of wealth of information who give a lot of that to me. It's an opportunity for me to give them a platform to share that with more people mm -hmm. and some people to be honest who typically wouldn't get access to that information for one reason or other yeah and so slow money club is really the concept about going from employee to entrepreneur turning your dreams into income streams and making sure that you are doing the things that you want to do in life as opposed to just go to school get good grades get a job retire pay into a pension retire you know slow money club is about looking at investing using things like what I've learned from Ben Graham and other people to try and develop um, a framework, if you like, um, a strategy and an approach that I've used and other people in the Slow Money Club have used successfully to gain financial independence and sort of improve their financial well-being. Um, yeah, so Slow Money Club is ultimately about encouraging everybody to take the patient and persistent approach to getting financial independence and be improving your own financial well-being okay so what, what was the exact reason you started the slow money club any particular reason i mean i don't know if there's any particular reason i think w one of the things that made me start slow money club was because well, well two things my friends and my family mm -hmm. so a lot of the people and a lot of the content that I produce for Slow Money Club that we produce is really aimed at my friends and my family. It's like taking information that I may learn in my professional career um, about blockchain, Bitcoin. I might go meet some people from the FCA and talk about how the, the FCA Sandbox project and what they're doing from or, the, or, or other things, similar things. FCA? Financial Conduct Authority, okay. sorry. So the FCA are the people who regulate financial conduct in the UK. Yeah. And so they might be working on some stuff on the Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto space. But I can help other people get access to that information, um, which may be public, but it's, but it's not necessarily easy to find. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if I, if I meet people in, in networking events that I'm speaking at, um, I can 
give them another platform, another avenue to share their message. Um, you know, so on my podcast, I've had people like John Corey, Cam Devady, uh, Susanna Cole, uh, a number of other people. I've got other people coming to talk specifically about blockchain, Bitcoin, but giving people, other people, an opportunity to get this information, access it, and be able to use it. That's really what Slow Money is about. Yeah, I, I love your podcast, by the way. Um, if I that's didn't good. mention that already. That's good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you've listened to it. At least it's you and me that's listened to it's it. It's just me and you. <laughs> okay, so you on your website, the Slow Money Club website, mentioned the 10 money commandments. Now, I was looking in the Bible and I couldn't see them in the 10 money commandments. <laughs> I couldn't see them anywhere there. So did I miss that page or what are they? Yeah, good good point. Um, hmm. I don't think I saw them in the Bible either, if I'm honest. <laughs> okay. Um, I will go back and look, but the 10 money commandments, um, I'll tell you, so... <laughs> Uh, the, one of one of my favorite musicians is a is a, a rapper called the Notorious B.I.G. I don't know if yeah anybody have heard of him. Yeah, you, yeah. I'm glad you have. So um, Biggie, Biggie very Smalls. well. Yes, yeah. Big. Oh yes, oh, Biggie. Yeah, you know yeah. Biggie. Okay, I'm in a good place now. Friend so, of the yeah. family. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I'm glad Andy's Andy's down with the B.I.G. But <laughs> one of Biggie's um, lyrics is that it, well, one of his songs actually he calls it the Ten Crack Commandments. And he talks about selling drugs. One, he gives, basically gives a, blu- a blueprint using command, 10 commandments on how to sell drugs. Right. Now, I am not advocating or supporting the use of any drugs. No, no. Children, no drugs. No drugs. But I'm a big Biggie fan. I'm a fan of his artistry and his music. Okay. And he says, you know, he, so this song, the, the concept was about, you know, I'm, I'm not, and this is what I, you know, like to do. I'm taking something that could be perceived as negative the idea of 10 crack commandments how to sell drugs and i'm trying to bring that into something more positive yeah the idea of financial well-being the the idea of um financial independence and you know attracting people who might also like biggie and this might resonate with them when they when they see that you know we, we put out a, a little booklet called the 10 money commandments and one of the on the first page of the book is um, a quote from biggie and it goes i've been in the game for years it made me an animal. It's rules to this. I wrote me a manual, step-by-step booklet for you to get your game on track. And so that's the intro to the booklet. Okay. But that's the lyric from the Biggie song, The Ten Crack Commandments. You're not claiming that one then? It's no. Cool. No, <laughs> okay, <fair enough. laughs> no, on this occasion, I'm, I'm not okay. claiming it. And um, I mean, I, ironically, so I'm a big fan of Biggie. I'm also a big fan of another artist um, called Tupac. Mm-hmm. And um, funnily enough, Tupac has a song where he gives a set of rules about life, not necessarily about drugs, but about the game. And um, he... This is Tupac Shakur. Yes. I was was a friend of his family as well. (laughs) Exactly, you know. So Tupac as well has a framework and principles and ideas that he was laying down on a separate song. So, you know, these two great legendary artists have these concepts about commandments almost that you, you keep. And his... Well, he didn't call uh, his his uh, ten uh, crack commandments. His song is about blasphemy, and that's ironically similar. And so that's where I came out. I thought, you know, they are kind of both separately and totally independently playing with this idea of rules from the Bible. And so Tupac said, "I got advice from my father. All he told me was this: get off your ass if you plan to be rich." And that's one of the rules, you know. And I think that's a great advice. <laughs> For anybody, but yeah, so, so the 10, 10 money commandments is really just a series of uh, ten rules that are based on things like readings from different books um, that I've read and pulled them in 
in, when I was reading all this material, what I was doing was writing notes. And so I might read a book and actually that book distills to maybe six points. And then I read another book and that distills to five or six points in itself. And as I read books, I notice that actually there's probably about 10 things that they're all talking about across every book. So I just kind of pulled out the key bits, the key learnings from all of these from my notebook. Mm-hmm. And I turned them into this 10 money commandments. And yeah, if you go to the Slow Money Club um, website, you'll be able to get the booklet for free um, during our launch period. Uh, but it includes things like, you know, rule number one for me anyway, and from everything that I've learned is to, in order to become financially well, don't make money your main goal. Okay. I think the most important thing is to have a goal that's not oriented around money because otherwise you'll never find that satisfaction. You'll constantly be chasing something that doesn't make you happy. So money's a byproduct of success. Money's a byproduct of successfully helping people, more importantly. The more people you help, the more money you'll make. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, that's just how it works. You can look so across so many examples in life. You know, the more people you help, the more money. So mm-hmm. if you focus on not the money, but what you can provide to other people how you can help them what can you do for them eventually you know the money will come okay so what advice would you offer to the listener for improving their financial investing well (laughs) i think the first thing is to get the 10 money commandments um but there's a number of things i think if you once you understand the principles around how not just the money side of it but things like surrounding yourself with the right people having a plan having an investment strategy an investment philosophy learning as i mentioned i you know first before i invested i took a a number of courses and did a number of learnings but before you invest you need to go through those type of things but i think the other thing actually that i'd add is understanding your investment psychology this is something that is a concept where um, people don't necessarily think about but your own philosophy around investing your emotional behavior around investing for example you might want to like you might have a certain risk profile so you might be risk tolerant so you might be happy to carry a lot of risk but at the same time you might not have very good composure so yeah I like to take big risks but actually when things get to a certain point you don't have good composure so you will sell for you use stocks and shares as an example yeah you invest in risky companies but when the price drops you sell instead of waiting for the price to bounce back yeah and so you have you have a high tolerance for risk but you don't necessarily have the composure to have that much risk as so i think that's for me probably the single most important thing when it comes to investing understanding what your actual composure is for risk as opposed to what your tolerance is for risk yeah i get you we started off our investing life in property with negative equity of minus 28,000. Wow. So yeah, we had to have composure because we wanted to sell because we wanted to move on, get a family home. We had a little studio flat in North London, but we couldn't really. And it was just tough it out time. So every month, instead of making money from property like people do now, back in the early 90s, I was subsidizing somebody else living in that flat. Yeah. But as time went on, I think we ended up coming up from that particular flat plus 55 so 12 years later that was roughly so it was a matter of you know time went by and we made a little bit of money like being in the slow money club well you are are. slow money exactly and i think that's what i like about you i think you you get it intrinsically and what you just described really is that you have the composure and so other people in that situation would have sold at a loss 
they might have had you know they might have had a high enough tolerance risk tolerance to invest in property because you need a, quite a high risk tolerance to be a property investor but they wouldn't have had the composure to keep hold of that investment and wait the the period the time scale for it to return into profit and they would have made a loss yeah. then they would have come back and said actually property is terrible never invest in property because i made a loss when really yeah. the reason is because while they have the risk tolerance they didn't have the risk composure i know people that did exactly that yeah and you're right it, it was a tough time all round, mind you you know i wasn't jumping for joy every month as i paid out for someone else to live there yeah but having said that over a longer period of time i won so yeah. you're exactly right so get with your compliance head on now yep. okay you've got your compliance hat on what do you see as the pitfalls of financial compliance in years to come well that's a good question um I think the first point I make is that the the regulator, the FCA, who I mentioned earlier, they often, and they say themselves, that they don't necessarily investigate things until people complain. And so, as, as similar with PPI, when things were going really well up, up until probably about 2008, 2009, there wasn't any PPI claims. It was when the recession hit and people were looking at their bank statement and thinking, oh, wait, actually, this has been going out five quid or 10 quid or whatever every month for ages. Then they started complaining because they didn't have money. So at the moment in property, we're in quite good time. So, you know, there won't be many people complaining because mm. they're making a good profit. And what about with stocks and shares and Bitcoin and such like? Similar. So I think the regulators are looking more closely at particular stocks and shares. Uh, sorry, in particular, Bitcoin. Um, in fact, you've got things like even Google the other day said that they're going to stop. They're going to ban advertising of things called ICOs, which are initial coin offerings which is like a flotation, if you like, of cryptocurrency or tokens associated with companies. So, yeah, the, the, eventually the regulators are going to have more time because things like PPI scan would have died down. They would have hired loads of staff. They'll have to redirect those staff to other things. And plus, with things like Brexit on the horizon, we've had many cycles of positive growth in the economies, or global economies. We're probably due some kind of downturn when things like that start happening in the world, that's when people are going to start thinking, wait, actually, this deal isn't working out. I'm going to need to complain. So to answer your question, I think in the future, it's not, it might not necessarily be even new regulation that is the issue. It's existing deals which start to, the deal economics don't necessarily look good anymore going forward. And then those people who've invested in a deal start questioning it. And I think that's where we could have some trouble. Then if they complain, the regulators start looking at, okay, you know, how did they invest in this? Did they get any advice? Who advised them? Who told? Who said to them that you should put your money in this deal? Because that's always the first thing they look at. And then, you know, people will look at things like, maybe they were, they were a sophisticated investor or high net worth professional. The regulator will say, okay, well, what should they have been? It's not just a question of they've self-certified, so it's fine. The regulators, when they start looking at these things, mm. put a much higher burden of, of um, onus on the person who's engaging in the activity mm. than they do on the individual. So I think there's there's lots of room from a regulatory perspective to look at a lot of the activities that are going on now retrospectively and punish people in the future. And for me, that's probably where the biggest risk area is. For example, you know, a lot of people are taking individuals' money and putting it into deals when those individuals haven't received any financial advice whatsoever. That's money that was going to be for their pension, say. Now, everything is fine. Things are going well now. In 10 years' time, we have a recession. Those deals go bad. That money's gone. They've lost their money. 
they're going to complain and then the regular everything's going to this is the same thing that happened with PPI scandal so it was just that type of ticking time bomb really that for me is more of a of the bigger concern but as well you know there's there's things like Brexit happening what's going to happen is that Brexit we're probably going to get new rules and regulations that are coming in um, because we're going to take existing regulations or directives which have been transposed into UK law that now need to be taken out and either mm. amended or changed slightly. So that's going to have a secondary knock-on effect into what we have to do, uh, how we analyse those regulations and what it means from a property investor perspective. Mm. But yeah, so I think just mainly focusing on the existing regulations and making sure that you're complying with those when you're doing them is probably where the bigger risk is. And then in looking down the line, it's probably the things like Brexit outcomes that are going to have new regulations. It's probably There's probably going to be some kind of tsunami of regulations post-Brexit, if I'm honest. I think Brexit could be a tsunami in general if we're not careful <laughs> you know, let's, hopefully fingers crossed it all works out but what about you what about quasi affirm what's the future for quasi affirm and the slow money club wow that's a good question i mean one of the things that i really enjoy is entrepreneurism so i'm planning on starting a number of new ventures we're about to start the youtube page for slow money i'm also going to start actually a personal uh, vlog over the next few weeks we're going to go out to thailand to start some filming for the for that um on, wow. the, <laughs> on the on the on the slow money side really it's about producing content free as much as possible valuable useful content for people around how to invest what is the strategy that actually rich people use what the i, I believe in using other people's success as a framework for your own success that's how I came up with the 10 money commandments. It's based on the success of other people and I'm just consuming it. So it's more of that on slow money stuff, produce more content. Most of like 90% of the content we, we produce is going to be free. That's one of our key goals. And then on the property side, I want to grow my property portfolio, grow the business side. I've just hired somebody um, last week into the business. So hopefully they're going to help me grow that business, make that you know, I have my career. One of the things that I don't want to give up is I, I, I'm not ready to make the transition fully from employee to um, to entrepreneur. Yeah. I am definitely, I think, one of those people that likes to do both. I'm very much, you know, I, I like the opportunities that my career provides me. It gives me opportunities that I just wouldn't get. I was in, I, I was in Parliament twice in two weeks. Um, one is for different things as part of different committees one for the um, parliamentary committee on communications and internet where we were discussing Brexit ironically mm. and what that the impact that will have on things like um, data transfer across Europe yeah. speaking of regulation there's things like GDPR regulation that's the general data protection regulation and what does that mean when we leave the EU how how is GDPR going to affect the UK as a third country which is what we're going to be that's a technical term third country but it's not something that i don't think many people understand probably if more people understood us being a third country as opposed to being part of the eu i'm not sure that they would have voted in the way that they did but an example japan is a third country to the eu we're going to be like japan when it comes to everything um regulations yeah. what regulations apply across borders etc so that's all going to be very interesting and yeah, I'm looking forward to being kept very busy in my career over the next few years, as well as everything else I'm doing. I bet, I bet you will be busy as well, because uh, <laughs> I think people will find... I didn't vote for it, by the way. So I think certain people will find there's a lot more pitfalls 
than we knew about. And certain people, as soon as we come out of the Brexit um, debate and the Brexit vote, there were certain people that sort of, um, God, we won. Oh my, uh, I I must be somewhere else. I'm off. I've got to go. And they they just disappeared, didn't they? Yeah. I didn't think they had a plan B. And I I think people are making this up as they go along. And the latest one I've heard is that we're going to have a Kit Kat, as they called it. Have you heard this? No. We're going to have a Kit Kat Brexit, which is basically a thin wafer uh, of chocolate on top of the the wafer that's underneath it. So in other words, we're going to get a Brexit, but really and truly we'll still pretty much be in EU. I mean, that that would suit me because I didn't want to come out in the first place. But to be honest, I'm not sure that would suit me personally. I, I didn't vote for it, but now that it's happened, I want it to happen. This is what, you know, I, I, I think markets in general like clarity. Yeah. I want to have a definitive Brexit. I want to have a Brexit where we're clear that, you know, we've left the EU. We are, as they call it, an independent country, even though we were already and still are anyway. But I want to have a, you know, clean cut. I want to have, I wouldn't actually mind a hard Brexit. I think the ultimate thing is that Brexit is Brexit, as, the, as Theresa May said. And so we might as well just take it. We might as well just take it, do it, move on, deal with it. I'm kind of slightly bored with the whole discussion. To your earlier point, they had no plan. There is no plan. Nobody thought this was going to happen. When it happened, the people that made it happen left. You know, they were gone faster than some of those cartoons, you know, when they have the cartoon character run away and leave smoke behind. They didn't want this. They, they wanted to fight for it. And Nigel Farage wanted his peerage for it. You know, he wanted to become Sir Nigel Farage because of this, but I don't think he actually wanted Brexit. His wife is German, and, you know, it, one of the things that happened um, to people I know is that after Brexit, they had applied for British British citizenship, and they got a letter telling them to leave the country as soon as possible. I wonder if Farage's wife got one of those letters. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm just like, so over it. Let's just have Brexit. Let's just... Deal with it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful, but let's do it. It's a bit like when you haven't been to the gym for a really long time and you want to go, and it's hard. You know, you just have to take your medicine. Okay, well, let's move on. <laughs> we'll, draw, we'll draw a veil under that one. Hopefully, everything will go well. And then well, no one, one point. Worry. I mean, one point on Brexit. So I didn't vote for it, and as I mentioned, I work in financial services, which is is probably the biggest sector that stands to lose out as a result of Brexit. My boss at work voted for Brexit. So, you know, it's people from all walks of life. It's not, there's a lot of stuff in the papers around people who are ignorant, don't know what they're doing, don't understand things. But, you know, this is my boss. She, she's a senior to me. She has more experience than me. She works in the sector that stands to lose out the most and she voted for it. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, well, just finishing up now. So how can anyone that wants to become an investor start crazy? what's best? I think I always say start with education lead with education educate yourself about investing find people who have been successful investors see what they did how they did it do that before you even invest anything but then there's a there's a thin line between analyzing and reading and actually getting into it and so you can get stuck in a kind of analysis paralysis phase and just keep reading reading going to courses but you need to take action so I think if you want to start, start with education, then take action. Better to take a, there's no such thing for me as wrong action or bad action. If you do it, you learn from it, whether mm. you get a positive. My first, so to go back to the story earlier on in the show, 
Um, so working in um, banking, I just started out. I'd finished uni. I was I was working Northern Rock for for a week or so. Their shares were tumbling. Is this when you was making all these big companies go bad? Well, <laughs> so yeah, Northern Rock shares were tumbling, but I actually I was I was losing money from Northern Rock. So I was foolishly I I hadn't done the education bit. I hadn't learned, and I was buying Northern Rock shares because I thought that it was going to go up. Ouch. Yeah. So for a week, for a whole week, I was buying shares, then selling them so that I could buy them back cheaper, hoping they'd go up, but then they wouldn't. So then I sell them again and buy them back cheaper, hoping they'd go up again. And <laughs> yeah, didn't, that's... Didn't work out, did it? No. I, I, ironically, it was just, it was just a period I'm like, no, I'll never do that again. I was, it was almost, it was almost like day trading, but not day trading. I couldn't focus on my job. I couldn't, at the back of my mind, all I had was what, what price, how much money have I lost already? But yeah, so after that experience, I went the education route. That's when I started doing things like reading those books that I mentioned. And that's what I recommend based on my own experience. I say, use other people's experiences as a guide for your own. Start with education. And then go back in. So then when I went back into it, it wasn't like I was winning all the time, but I understood it more. I understood what was happening. I understood the market behavior. Mm -hmm. I had a philosophy. So even sometimes when the market was doing certain things, I was numb to it because I knew that I had a certain goal. And actually, one of um, one of the companies that I invested in early on was uh, BP. Back then, it was literally around the time of the deep water horizon scandal or situation where this um, oil rig that BP owned um, was managed by Halliburton at the time there was the leak and so BP's share price was tumbling but as I mentioned about Ben Graham what I'd learned from him is about the whole thing about intrinsic value and so I did some analysis and what I calculated was actually you know BP has loads of assets globally around the world their share price is tumbling because their reputation is falling but then the important thing for me was to look at actually what is the potential cost of this thing that's happening mm -hmm. and I looked at previous historic examples of similar leaks and what did it mean how much did these companies get fined then I doubled it and then I looked at BP and I was actually they could take this doubling hit and still come out okay Yeah. and so as the share price was tumbling I was just seeing great value op op opportunity and so unlike Northern Rock I did pretty much the same thing I was buying these shares Northern Rock went bankrupt because I didn't know what I was doing. This time I knew what I was doing and I ended up making a decent amount of return on BP when it bounced back around. Yeah, over the longer term. Over the longer term. Yeah, I get you, yeah. yeah. Okay, so how should people best contact you if they want to know more about you, Crazy? Best way to contact me is to go to the slowmoneyclub.com. There you'll find contact us links. Um, you can also contact me on Twitter at slowmoneyclub, Instagram at slowmoneyclub. Um, yeah. Those are probably the best ways. Thanks very much, Crazy, for coming along. And I wish you all the best for the future. Thanks My very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And until next time, start transforming your wealth and health now.